This podcast discusses violence, drug use, and other adult themes. Listener discretion is advised. All right, it's episode two of Breaking Pod. Super excited to break down the second episode in the series with you. And as always, I'm joined by my co-host on Breaking Pod, Josh Goldman, also of the Popcast. Josh, how are you doing this evening? I'm doing well. How about you? Doing very well. Today, we're going to talk about Cats in the Bag. That is the second episode of the first season of Breaking Bad. It aired on AMC in the United States and Canada on January 27th, 2008. The director of this one was a guy named Adam Bernstein. I talked in the first episode about the the pilot, and that was written and directed by Vince Gilligan, the show's creator. But this is the first time we have a different director, so there may be some differences in the way the story or characters are portrayed, which could add to some interesting conversation. But The Cats in the Bag is an interesting episode because it's here where we really start to see things unravel and we start to see a lot of good character development. I think we get some good insights into the central characters in the show as well. If you haven't listened to our previous episode, I encourage you to do that because that is the pilot. We break down the show's arc. We ask some some questions that we think are central to the show and we talk about the beginning of the whole Breaking Bad story. But this is episode two, the cat's in the bag. So before we talk about episode two though, Josh, maybe just going back to the theme of episode one, do you have any follow-up comments or things you wanted to talk about adding on to our previous discussion? Definitely. Well, it just feels like just yesterday that we sat down and recorded episode one. Oh, <laughs> it in fact was yesterday. It, it was yesterday. Yeah. So the first thing that I wanted to say as in terms of follow-up was just a, a little fun nugget that I found when I was doing I love some fun research nuggets. on the show. Yeah. So we talked a lot in the first episode of Breaking Pod about sort of the amazing casting of Walter White and how Brian Cranston is just, it just seems made for this role. Well, it turns out he was not the first choice for Walter White. In fact, it was offered to two pretty famous actors before Brian Cranston. The first was John Cusack and the second was Matthew Broderick. So, so that's crazy. John Cusack, I can see. Matthew Broderick, I can't. That, I mean, that's Ferris Bueller. And I, yeah. I don't see, I mean, I think the show would be way different with Ferris Bueller cast in the role of Walter White. Yeah, I wonder though, I'm trying to put myself in the shoes of like 2008 because the one of the things that I mentioned on, on the premiere episode of Breaking Pod was that Brian Cranston was not necessarily known for his dramatic turns before he took the role in Breaking Bad. I think he'd done some guest work here and there, but his major starring role was in a comedy. So I wonder, like clearly now we know that he is a really talented actor, but you know, would we have felt differently in 2008 if we'd heard John Cusack or Matthew Broderick was going to be playing the role of Walter White? I'm with you. I can see a path for John Cusack. I can't see a path for a successful show from Matthew Broderick. He just doesn't seem like the right kind of actor. There's something almost like there's something about the way Brian Cranston delivers lines where he's, he has a really deep and commanding voice and Matthew Broderick doesn't have that same kind of voice. So even just setting aside the actual ability to act the role, I think there has to be some sort of gravitas that you have as an actor to play a role like this. So I think in that sense, you know, it makes sense that Brian Cranston got this role and excelled in doing so. Well, the other thing it makes me think about is 
Matthew Broderick and John Cusack are very different actors than than the the type of or they, they generally give the give different performances than what we see Brian Cranston delivering in this show. And it right. makes me wonder if Vince Gilligan actually had his perception or his artistic direction for the show changed or transformed by Brian Cranston's performance. Because maybe he saw something maybe he saw Breaking Bad as something different than what it ended up becoming with Brian Cranston in the lead role. And we, we, we really would have had a substantively different show if it was Matthew Broderick or John Cusack. That's a really good point. I didn't think about that at all, but you're right. I have read in other circumstances where people who create shows will rewrite or reimagine characters based on the actors that they find to play those roles. So that's a good point. The other bit of follow-up that I had was just an analogy that I wanted to make, but I couldn't quite formulate when we were recording episode one of Breaking Pod. But the way that I sort of see Walt in the first episode and trying to remove all of the knowledge that I have of him later in the series and just looking at him from that first look that we get of him, I kind of compare him to a little kid who decides to steal a candy bar from a convenience store. And at first he thinks, no harm, no foul. I'm just taking this candy bar for me. No one's going to be hurt by this. But then as time goes on, you start to realize that, well, the the shop owner might be affected, his bottom line, however small that is. You know, he starts to have to lie to his parents, to his friends, and you sort of just go down the rabbit hole. And it And it seems harder and harder to get out of it. So when we were talking about Walter White and we were talking about his motivations and whether he had sort of this evilness inside of him or whether he was a good person who was just sort of thrust into these circumstances, I sort of see him as this kid who did something that he realized was wrong. And when he got caught for it, as we saw with the camcorder scene in the first episode, he sort of backtracked. He started to tell some lies. He started to realize like, okay, I need to distance myself from what I've chosen to do here. Right. Yeah, and I can see that. I think though the weakness of the kid kid in the candy store analogy is that a kid doesn't have a fully formed moral conscience whereas Walt is a 50-year-old man we know that the the previous episode we saw him celebrate his 50th birthday so I think it's less like a kid in a candy store and more like an adult in a candy store who has who who has been able to sort of fantasize or dream about or think about all of the possible consequences if he did steal a candy and yet he still chose to steal a candy because it was personally advantageous for him to do so at that point. But but I see your point, and I think that it definitely has merit, and there are some things, and we'll even see some things in this episode, I think, that support the what we might call the rabbit hole theory, that, that Walt is a good man who finds himself in a bad situation and is a victim of circumstance, and his choices that spiral out of control beyond what he could possibly foresee. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. But maybe let's use that as a launching point to talk about episode two, Josh, and we'll just dig into dig into what the creators have in store for us here. So I, I mentioned how episode one leaves off with Walt uh, returning home and he and Skyler are having what looks like rough sex. Skyler looks very uncomfortable and the two aren't looking at each other or speaking to one another. Episode two starts off right there. So we've lost no time in between episode one and two. And then uh, as soon as that scene concludes, we flash back to 12 hours earlier when Walt and Jesse have the RV towed out of the ditch. Now, you'll recall from the previous episode, the RV ends up in the ditch when Walt crashes it, trying to drive away from the brush fire. They obviously need to get their RV because it's a, it's a 
meth lab on wheels. It's a bunch of evidence. They need to get that out of the ditch and get that taken care of. So they're, they're able to get this towed. They pay for someone to tow it out of the ditch. They pay cash, of course. <laughs> and then they try to drive it away. As soon as they start the RV, they realize that one of the drug dealers in the back of the RV is still alive. Here's that scene. Yes, okay. Right there, we're hearing the drug dealer moving. He's under a tarp right now, and they're realizing he's still alive. Oh, shit. So I wanted to play this scene, Josh, because I think this is a pivotal moment in the entire series. This this is, is first of all, where Walt, I think, realizes that his decisions really had serious consequences. This is no longer him making pure meth in an RV lab where everything else that happens with that meth afterwards is outside of his vision and line of sight. Now there's someone in his meth lab on wheels who he has poisoned with phosphine gas, even if it wasn't self-defense, and this person's still alive, and now Walt has a choice. What's what's he going to do here? So I think this is a really important maybe a pivotal moment for Walt as a character because what he's done so far has clearly affected people, but he can't change what he's done. He can't change the fact that he killed Emilio, the other dealer, in self-defense with the phosphine gas. But here he can choose a course of action that will save a life or cost a life. So what does he do? That's the question that he has. Did, did this scene strike you in, in a similar way? It actually didn't strike me as pivotal, and it's only because I think that at this point, he's sort of like one track mind. He's like, I've got to clean up this situation because we talked a lot in the first episode of the podcast about how Walt has a control problem. Right. And I think that this is not where I would say his turning point is like he has a choice to go one way or the other, because what are his other options at this point? Like, does he just dump him out of the RV and they drive away and they hope that he never, like he just dies there. Like, I don't know what the solution is for them at this point. Which is, which is why it makes sense that they decide to drive him back to Albuquerque and park him and leave him in the, the RV. Like, what do you, I, I guess I'm curious, what do you see as the, what are his options at this point? Well, I think the options are, I mean, it's essentially binary. I'm sure there are other in-betweens, but essentially it's clean up the mess. And by clean up, I mean, kill Crazy Eight, right? So and we'll sort of see how how this course of action unfolds, but clean up the mess, or now is the time where you can turn yourself in, right? Because you haven't you haven't committed a major crime yet. You killed someone in self-defense and wounded someone else in self-defense when they tried to kill you, right? And you tried to manufacture drugs for the purpose of selling it, but you didn't actually sell anything. So there's it, it right. would it would it would be like a comedy of errors at this point. I'm sure he would uh, he would be convicted of something maybe have to plead guilty to a lesser offense, you know, time served, community service, whatever. But I think at this point, it's not too late for him to get off scot-free with a clear conscience uh, and, you know, a blemished record, but a clear conscience. On the other hand, you, you can go for the clean it all up, uh, even if that's going to potentially result in someone else's death. But to, but to me, those are essentially the binary options that he has in front of him, and Jesse as well. Interesting. I You know, I think that if you take it at face value that 
the reason he's gone down this path at all is because he is doing it for his family, then the option of turning himself in almost seems worse than any other option that he has because he would think to himself, all right, not only do I have lung cancer, I'm now going to be either in prison for a little bit of time or I'm going to have some sort of record where I can't Unemployable, work. sure, yeah. Right. And the whole point of this was to take care of my family and make sure that they had some sort of security when I potentially die from this cancer. So yes, I can see that there might be two options here, but the situation that he's in, I just don't see him making any other choice. If we're talking about like a potential choose your own adventure book here, I never see him taking the option to say, all right, you know what? Uh, hands up. I, I shouldn't have done this. I'm going to turn myself in. And and this actually might support your theory that maybe he has always had this sort of evilness inside of him and he doesn't consider that other option because he has that inside of him. Yeah, that's that's kind of what I was going to say is, is that you said you see no scenario in which he does that. And I think my question to you would be why? And I think it's because we see Walt as a prideful man who doesn't admit mistakes and so even even though he has we talked about this in the previous episode even though he has what looks like a very mundane life he you know leaves at eight returns at five teaches high school chemistry wears the same kind of off-white or yellow button-down shirts like a very very boring life from the outside by all appearances but he's a very prideful man and I think because of that to him he doesn't really have the option of turning himself in either he's not going to admit to somebody especially the authorities especially the authorities for which his brother-in-law works for he's not going to admit that he was wrong that he messed up that he couldn't do it and so instead he pursues this track of of cleaning up yeah and I think he thinks that if he cleans up the situation in whatever in whatever way that manifests that at that point he might be able to see a break for himself right like i think that he thinks that this is not the right point to turn back or go forward i think he just thinks go forward like that's uh, until he gets to a clean break and that goes back to the whole idea of he's a controlling person he needs to feel like he's in control of a situation yeah i absolutely agree well let's let's continue on here so we uh we then fa- fast forward we're now the morning after and walt is on the bathroom floor it looks like he spent all night there it looks like he probably passed out after another coughing attack like the one he had at the car wash where he collapsed uh remember at this point he still hasn't told anyone about his cancer diagnosis so skyler's in the dark his son is in the dark his whole family um and then we we find ourselves in the dining room where the whole white family him skyler walter jr they're all having this very awkward breakfast together skyler and walter are looking uncomfortably at each other probably thinking about the events of the previous night and then walt tries to break the silence with this strange story about how girls in his high school are wearing push-up bras and uh, having having uh, risque pictures taken for the yearbook. It's very bizarre, and Skyler doesn't know what to make of it, and we don't either. And then the phone rings, and Josh, this is what we hear. Okay. Hey there. You've reached Walt, Skyler, and Walter Jr. We can't come to the phone right now, so please leave us a message. Hello, Mr. White. This is AT&T calling. Are you happy with your uh, current long-distance service? Because if you're not, I would definitely really, really love to talk to you as soon as possible. So obviously this hello, is not AT&T. Hello, this is, this is Jesse you calling Walter's residence. You said he was practically dead, okay? You said he would die any minute. Listen, uh, I am having breakfast with my family right now, and I, I really don't appreciate these sales calls. Well, 
Well, too bad, man, because guess what? He's still not dead. I wouldn't put my ear to the RV. I can hear him, like, rolling around in there, all right? I, I, I think he's awake, man. I think he's trying to get loose. Where the hell are you? I'm freaking out over here. Calm down, damn it. Are you going to help me clean this up? Huh? We got loose ends here. Calm down. I will be there after school. A after school? Are you shitting me? Ditch it, man. Call in sick. Uh, listen, uh, that is just not going to work for me. I'm, I'm not interested in that at all. And uh, I would appreciate it if you don't call here anymore. Damn, they're so annoying, those people. So obviously Walt tries to pass this off as, oh, it was actually an AT&T telemarketer. So annoying. I can't stand telemarketers. But he doesn't do a very good job. Skyder doesn't buy it at all. Um, it, if you if you see the scene, you can see Walt's acting very frazzled, not the way you would think he would if he was talking to an AT&T rep who wanted him to upgrade his wireless service. Um, so, Josh, I picked this scene as well because I think this is one instance where we see Walt losing control. We talked in the first episode about how Walt is a man who loves control, and that's why he, he honed in on the yellow mustard stain on his oncologist lab coat when he was getting the word that he has a terminal diagnosis. So Walt's the man who loves control. And here he, we see the first glimmer of him losing it, and it really upsets him. So I think for him, it's not just the fact that Skyler might find out that upsets him. It's the fact that his control was intruded. We were in this quiet environment where he was having breakfast with his family, even if it was awkward. And then this phone call penetrates that silence, and it's none other, none other than Jesse on the other end telling him about all of the messy problems that he has. Now, where are those problems? Those problems are at Jesse's house. And why are they at Jesse's house? Because Walt told Jesse to take the RV to his house with the body of one guy in it and the the guy who's struggling to stay alive in it as well and leave it at Jesse's house because it's Jesse's problem and Walt doesn't want to want it to intrude on his comfortable suburban white middle class life so he goes home uh, and he doesn't want that problem there and then he gets very discomfited when Jesse calls and says hey he's still not dead this is a problem where are you and he basically tells Jesse, you know, I'll be there to help you deal with it. Don't call here again. Slams the phone down. What, what do you think of this scene, Josh? Am I missing something? No, I think you're right in your analysis of it that this is definitely a moment where Walt loses control and it, it shows. I think that the dead giveaway should be that when has a telemarketer called in the morning? <laughs> like, Yeah, that's a really good point. <laughs> like that should be just you know thing number one Skyler points out like yeah. uh who what telemarketer calls at 8 30 in the morning or 7 30 in the morning before he goes off to school so that's kind of weird the thing that I wanted to say about the scene preceding the phone call really quickly is that it is a weird conversation that Walt is having with Walt Jr. and Skyler but I wonder if we didn't see anything else preceding that scene right and this was just the first interaction we'd seen would this be like a normal awkward like is it always awkward with them <laughs> that's a good point yeah is this how every morning in the white right. family is and i kind of think it is yeah. like i kind of think that they don't have really deep conversations they right they, they it's always awkward like it's awkward to hear dad talking about girls you go to school with it, like i just kind of feel like that's just another indication of their strained family life that's a good point yeah I think I, they, I, I do sort of read the events of the previous day and evening into that conversation. But when right. you mention it, the 50th birthday breakfast was also super awkward, 
right? Exactly. And, and that was before any of this happened. So, and and that was supposed to be on a really celebratory day. Yeah, that, that should have been like the most exciting day. You know, the that's a good milestone point. birthday. Really good point. Oh man. Okay. So the thing that I wanted to say about the phone call, though, yeah. is that we're focusing a lot on Walt here, but I want to focus a little bit on Jesse here mm-hmm. because if you were if you put yourself in his shoes, like clearly he would be freaking out. Yeah. I mean, like it's not it. it it you know we're seeing it through Walter's eyes like he's upset that he called his home and sort of disturbed his family life but think about it from Jesse's perspective for a second he's got someone who's deceased and he's got someone who's on the verge of dying in his driveway and he's not sure what to do and this is not someone who is comfortable dealing with anything that requires responsibility right and so i think it's an insight into his character that he needs someone to help him. He needs a partner. And I think that is something that we're going to continue to explore as we walk through this series. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And it reminds me of what we had talked about in the last episode when Walt proposes to Jesse that they work together. And it's really less of a proposal and more of a demand because he threatens to turn Jesse in. But that sets up this power differential that you'll see played out and in a very like perverse way. Walt is almost a father figure to Jesse. And you'll see time and time again, Jesse needs help solving problems and doing things. And he doesn't have a role model. And um, and we'll talk about that sort of because we'll learn more about Jesse's Jesse's personal life and family life later. But I think that will come into this conversation that, you know, Jesse, this is in a, in a way, this is a son figure calling a father figure. Uh, and the son is totally lost and doesn't know what to do and how to handle the problems. Yep, exactly. Well, let's move on then. So whether it was the telemarketer calling in the morning or uh, Walt's very strange affect, whatever it was, Jesse or Skyler doesn't buy it at all. And as soon as Walt leaves for work, she does the uh, does the callback number, figures out who it was. She gets the number. She plugs it into Google, reverse traces it, finds that it belongs to this guy named Jesse Pinkman. And she calls Jesse Pinkman's number and she hears his voicemail and I'm playing this just so you can hear the the iconic voicemail here. It does underscore Jesse's immaturity, which goes to the point that you were making, Josh. But I think this is an iconic voicemail. I actually have this as an alarm on my phone. Uh, this is the famous Jesse's voicemail. Yo, yo, yo. One, four, eight. Three to the three to the six to the nine. Representing the ABQ. What up, biatch? Leave it at the tone. So representing the ABQ, Josh, that is the voicemail of Jesse Pinkman. So Skyder calls that and thinks, what in the world? Who did I just call? Uh, what is going on here? I, I can't figure it out. But she does find him online. She finds it looks like a web page of him, maybe like a MySpace or something type of profile. And it looks like he is into sex and drugs. So she associates this with Walt, obviously, because this young man was just calling Walt at home and Walt had a extended conversation with him. So she's like, my husband's into something up to no good. She She's trying to figure out what's going on. Can so, I just say yeah. about the... So I think that this show has done a really nice job of standing up over, over time. You know, the show came out 11 years ago at this point mm-hmm. in 2008. But the... The site she uses to reverse trace his call is maybe like the most early 2000s site I could think of. It's like this, it's like what, something like on the dark web? I I couldn't really like, it was like such a, such a goofy thing. Like I think most of the show holds up really well, but this like website she uses looks like 
you know, like 1990s, yeah. like early it's like, search it's like, it's like a GeoCities website or something. Yeah, it's super weird. <laughs> but, you know, it's it serves the purpose of telling the story. But I just right. it stuck out to me watching it in 2019. Like, OK, this is this is pretty bad. Yeah, it caught my eye as well. And I was like, what is that? I, that doesn't I mean, this is this was made in 2007. It, it, right, this is not right. that old. Uh, you know, Facebook was a thing, for example. Yeah, um, exactly. All right. Well, th- so the next scene that I think we should talk about, Josh, you and I both actually independently took notes on and flagged as a scene we needed to discuss. And then when we compared notes, we saw that we were both we both talked about this. So this is uh, later the same day. Walt is in his high school. He's giving a lecture on what we call chirality or what Walt call- calls chirality. And you'll hear him talk about this. But basically, it's a chemical, mathematical and or biological term to describe the properties of two different two forms of matter that are mirror images of one another. And I think this is another instance of Vince Gilligan using Walt's profession as a chemistry teacher to illustrate to us something that's going on here, something deep about the plot of Breaking Bad and the arc of the story. So here is Walt talking to his students about chirality. Listen closely. So the term chiral derives from the Greek word hand. Now the concept here being that just as your left hand and your right hand are mere images of one another, right? Identical and yet opposite. Well, so too organic compounds can exist as mere image forms of one another all the way down at the molecular level. But although they may look the same, they don't always behave the same. For instance, thalidomide, the the right-handed isomer of the drug thalidomide is a perfectly fine good medicine to give to a pregnant woman to prevent morning sickness but make the mistake of giving that same pregnant woman the left-handed isomer of the drug thalidomide and her child will be born with horrible birth defects so chiral chorality mirrored images right active inactive good bad so josh i'm really curious to hear your thoughts on this scene i I have a few things that i think might be going on so the key the key thing here is obviously in walt's description of two chiral elements as visually identical but vastly divergent in function like the the thalidomide medication or, or the the chiral mirror image of that that will cause birth defects so I think there are a few ways to interpret this discussion. The first way is you can interpret it in this sort of Manichaean fashion. So uh, basically a dualistic sense of a battle between evil and good. Uh, this finds an analog in some Eastern concepts like the yin-yang of Taoism. So this interpretation might support a view of Walt as deciding between the pursuit of the material world. This would be... Uh, normally in in, uh, Taoism or in uh, Manichaean philosophy, the material world is the darkness and the pursuit of knowledge is the light. And this is sort of Gnostic as well. But so this interpretation would posit Walt as deciding to pursue the material world, acquiring money, et cetera, through perhaps cooking meth uh, or the pursuit of knowledge, you know, just being a chemistry teacher and pursuing that profession. Um, That I think runs into some problems because the way that Walt pursues the money is actually using his profession as a means. So it's it's precisely his knowledge as a chemistry professional that enables his success in the darkness, if that makes sense. So I think that is sort of problematic. 
A second interpretation, though, I think, and this is one that I find a little bit more plausible, is that this is instead a commentary on the imperceptibility of our moral inclinations. In other words, is Walt inclined to the good or is he inclined to the bad? Like, how has he shaped his character through virtues so far to predispose him to acting in a certain way when he's faced with a decision? And I think the point of chirality is we can't really know from looking at the outward appearance because the outward appearance tells us nothing about the heart. All we can know is from function. What does he do? Uh, And that will tell us sort of uh, which way Walt's heart is inclined, if that makes sense. And then the third possibility, the third possible interpretation for this chirality theme is that maybe this is a commentary on Jesse and Walt. Um, And this kind of circles back to our overarching question for the series. Is Walt a bad man or is he a good man caught up in a bad situation? And I think we can ask the same question for Jesse and the answer might be very, very different. And this could be a commentary on the two of them because I think their characters are vastly divergent, even if their situations are virtually identical throughout the show. What do you think about this whole chirality thing? There's a lot going on here. Yeah, there's definitely a lot going on. I think that the second point that you made about not being able to see what is inside of someone is probably my favorite interpretation of this scene. But the other way that I thought about it was thinking about looking at yourself in the mirror and thinking about, you know, what if this what if there were two sort of dimensions you could live in one dimension where you act one way and you could live in another dimension where you act another way and you think about in one life you could choose to go one path and the other life you could choose to go another path but you would look the same in both you know yeah. i think like the outward appearance like he has a and i think we'll talk about this a little bit later in this episode and, and then the next episode especially but he has certain inflection points in his life where he he can choose to go one way or another. Right. And I think that those moments sort of show that we're talking about the same person. We're talking about someone who looks the same but could make two different decisions here. So he talks about the the medicine you can give to a pregnant person. Like I think of him as almost two people at this point. Like he has two paths he can go on and he's going to choose to go down one that makes any sense yeah no it definitely does and on that note i think it's interesting that he uses the example of thalidomide because that is a medication for pregnancy and if you use its chiral image then you will cause harm to the baby in the pregnancy and i think that that is apt here because what we're talking about is walt making choices that beget other choices and so you know, one like one one path or one series of choices gives rise to another set of choices because our actions have consequences. And so I think the the image of a, a mother bearing a child and the you know the chirality factoring into how that child develops, uh, it, it really applies here and it, it and sort of makes this a lot more interesting as an example. And even maybe more um, directly. Like this isn't the deepest interpretation, but you th- you can think about the example of the medication. You know, one medication eases pain, eases suffering, eases the nausea that a woman might feel, and the other one causes problems. So if you think about it in the most literal sense, like one path that Walt could choose is going to ease, you know, the the negativity in his life, and the other path is going to potentially take him down something that will 
make him defective and make him, you know, grotesque and disfigured. That's a really good point. I don't want to be guilty of carrying the analogy too far, but I, I do also Let's think it's Let's take it all the way. Let's yeah, just keep on all going. All the way. So I do think it's interesting on your point, Josh, you, you just pointed out, you know, the ease, ease the pain or, you know, end up sort of grotesque. Well, I think in the instance of a baby who was born with horrible defects, horrible birth defects, what, what happens? You don't see those birth defects until the big reveal, right? And so like all of these things that are happening to that baby are concealed within the mother's womb. I mean, obviously we have ultrasound scanning technology, et cetera, but, but you know, to someone who doesn't have access to ultrasound technology, they don't know about the baby's birth defects until the baby is born. And so, you know, Walt might be making these choices that are making him grotesque and corrupting him, but it's all happening inside, right? It's all about the, the heart and not the outward appearance until the big reveal when it's clear to everybody and he can hide it no longer. So that's also an interesting, an interesting point of this analogy, but maybe I am just carrying it a little bit too far. I don't know. Well, at the risk of taking it too far, I'd like to bring on a special guest, an OBGYN who can yes. speak specifically <laughs> about birth defects. And no. thalidomide. For our listeners, I'm just joking. Yes. Um, well, should we should we continue on from the from that scene, Josh? Yeah, I think we'll continue to talk about that theme as we go through this episode yeah. and future episodes. So, uh, to be continued with that point in particular. Yeah, sounds good. So uh, after this chirality discussion, we uh, we pan to Jesse, and Jesse discovers that Crazy Eight, who survived the phosphine gas attack, unlike Emilio, his cousin, Crazy Eight has fled the RV. So Jesse panics. He grabs a baseball bat, tries to go find Crazy Eight. Walt finds him as Walt's driving to Jesse's house to try to figure out this problem. He finds Crazy Eight walking down the street in broad daylight. He's gasping for air. His lungs have obviously been ravaged by the phosphine gas. Well, Crazy Eight actually sees Walt. He connects the two. He realizes Walt's the guy who tried to kill him. He runs into a tree and and uh, falls unconscious. So Walt, in broad daylight, in the middle of a suburb, loads Crazy Eight into the back of his car. That's sort of some interesting interesting imagery, maybe the a metaphor there, that this is all happening like right in the middle of a quiet suburb. Nobody seems to notice. Um, but he loads Crazy Eight into the back of his car. He takes him back to Jesse's house, and there the two of them take Crazy Eight into the basement and, and uh, put a bike lock around his neck and fasten him to a structural support pillar that's sitting in the basement. So then they decide on the best course of action to kill Crazy Eight, thereby protecting themselves, or they, they decide that the best course of action is to kill Crazy Eight. Um, but now there's obviously a decision about who has to do it. And so uh, this is this is where Walt has this suggestion of deciding the mechanism for who kills Crazy Eight. In a scenario like this, I don't suppose it is bad form to just flip a coin. And so they do indeed go on to flip a coin. And shocker, Walt loses the coin flip. Didn't see that one coming. Are you surprised that he let it get to that point? Because I was thinking more about this and I thought he up to this point has had a dominance over Jesse. Why wouldn't he just say, look, I know how to dispose of the body. So I will take that task and you will take care of crazy eight. Like, why doesn't he everything up to this point yeah. indicates that he would take the dominance over Jesse. And yet in this, in this case, he lets fate decide, you know, with a, or a, you know, 50, 50 chance decide I'm I'm surprised thinking more about it that he goes down that path. That's interesting. I had not thought about that. I I don't think I don't I know if there's an answer. Yeah, yeah, but I just thought that 
this is a this is maybe the first moment that we see in an episode and a half where Walt sort doesn't, of lets doesn't call the situation the get the better of him and doesn't call the shot. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and then he's he's willing to just leave it up to a coin flip. That is interesting. Right. And obviously he right. loses the coin flip, so it doesn't work out to his benefit. Right. It's it, it's narratively more interesting that Walt loses. Right. Because we see what the outcome of this is in the ne- next episode. But I, I just thought character-wise, it's interesting to think about why does he leave it up to chance here? Right. That's a... Yeah, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. I think the... I think the coin flip in and, in and of itself is interesting because of the... We were just talking about the chirality and, you know, what is a what is a coin, but, you know, two mirror images of each other. Um, and the the coin flip and specifically him losing the coin flip sets really sets him on this path that we're going to be following for the next several episodes, at least. So um, that's interesting. Um, and I, I, I uh, omitted this just for time, but after the suggestion of flipping a coin and after he loses the coin flip, Walt looks at Jesse and suggests best two out of three. Uh, and it, it's almost like a, it's, he says it sort of in a wry way. Like it's, it's a dry sense of humor or kind of a dark humor because he knows that Jesse's not going to go for two out of three because Jesse just won the coin toss. Um, and then we, we cut away from that scene. So that's interesting as well. But there's still this problem of disposing of Amelia's body. So the arrangement is Walt, since he lost the coin flip, is supposed to kill Crazy Eight. Jesse, since he won the coin flip, disposes disposes of Amelia's body. So um, Walt says we're going to dissolve Amelia's body in hydrofluoric acid. You need to go to the store, get these exact uh, get these exact supplies. Uh, this includes a plastic bin of a very specific type. So uh, Jesse heads out to run the errands while Walt tries to muster up courage to kill Crazy Eight in the basement. But he's very very conflicted about this, um, and this I think strengthens your theory josh about walt the good man victim of circumstance because he's, he's not excited about killing crazy a he doesn't want it to get to this point he obviously very much dislikes the fact that he's in the situation and he's trying to think of anything possible to get him out of having to kill crazy eight um he rolls a joint of marijuana he makes crazy eight a sandwich uh it's very clear he doesn't want to do this and he's dragging his feet so much so that jesse comes back he wasn't able to find a plastic tub big enough for the acid um, and he sees Walt smoking, is very displeased that A, Walt has helped himself to, to Jesse's weed stash, and B, that he hasn't yet killed Crazy Eight. And then, so they get in this little fight, uh, but then Walt just announces that he has to go. Again, he's going to leave Jesse with Crazy Eight alive in his basement. Walt doesn't want anything to do with having Crazy Eight in his basement, but he's going to be content to leave him in Jesse's basement. And he tells Jesse that he has to go to a doctor's appointment because he's um, going to meet his wife there. So he does. He heads to meet Skylar at an ultrasound appointment where the tech tells them that they're having a baby girl, which is great news. Um, but it's sort of strangely, to me at least, Skylar decides that now is a good time to confront Walt about Jesse. Because remember, this morning she has found out that Jesse Pinkman is this guy who has this crazy voicemail and he has this website. Uh, looks like he's into illicit things like drugs. And uh, she knows that Walt is somehow involved. So she says, who's Jesse Pinkman? And this is an interesting scene to me for a bunch of reasons that we can talk about in just a sec, but I'm going to play this scene for you here. It's slightly abridged just for time, but here's the gist of it, starting with Skyler's question to Walt. Who's Jesse Pinkman? He sells me pot. He sells you pot. Marijuana, yeah. Not a lot. I mean... 
kind of like it. Are you out of your mind? What are you, like 16 years old? Your brother-in-law is a DEA agent. What, what is wrong with you? Look, Skyler. <sighs> I just haven't quite been myself lately. Yeah, no shit. Thanks for noticing. I haven't been myself lately, but I love you. Nothing about that has changed. Nothing ever will. So right now, what I need is for you to climb down out of my ass. Can you do that? Will you do that for me, honey? Will you please, just once, get off my ass? You know, I'd appreciate it. I really would. So I don't know about you, Josh, but when I watched this again a couple of weeks ago, I actually laughed out loud because the scene, first of all, I didn't remember exactly how the scene went. And I was surprised when the direction of the dialogue went the way it did. But it sounds like it sounds like Walt is really apologizing to Skyler. And he assures her, reminds me of the camcorder scene, actually, he assures her that he still loves her and nothing about that has changed. And then all of a sudden it switches. Like he's being sweet and he's being sentimental and he's just found out that he's having a baby girl and there's nothing to be unhappy about in, in this immediate scene, at least. And then he all of a sudden starts saying, you know, climb down out of my ass, get off my ass. I'd really appreciate it. I really would. Um, a total flip from the way this conversation seemed to start. And... Um, it's, it's kind of comic in a way because of the suddenness of the pivot. But I also think it's interesting because this is a time when Walt has a chance to come completely clean or maybe not even completely clean, but at least tell, tell Skyler about his cancer diagnosis, because that would explain why he's looking for answers in pot. That would explain why he hasn't been himself lately. But does he do that? No, he turns it around on Skyler and makes it about her and tells her to get off his ass. What do you think about that? My impression is that this is his best opportunity up to this point to reveal the cancer diagnosis. So I'm surprised yeah. that character wise, he doesn't do it because it seems like a really good way to divert attention from the who's Jesse Pinkman and sort of make her forget all about Jesse. Like she's not going to care about Jesse once she finds out she's not going to care that he has smoked pot once she finds out that he has cancer, like all of the other stuff will go away. So I wonder a little bit if he feels like he needs to save that in case things get worse because he knows he still has to deal with the crazy eight situation. And he's thinking to himself, well, maybe I need to wait and use this later. Like as, as a, an ammo in my belt type of a yeah. thing. Yeah. My interpretation of his reaction to Skylar is almost one of like, I feel like since all married couples fight and bicker that this is one of those situations where he starts off thinking, okay, I'm just going to apologize, but then I just need you to leave me alone. Like, I I'm, I'm apologizing, but then just leave me alone. I've got a lot of other stuff on my mind. Right. It's, it's an awkward situation because it's supposed to be a happy moment where they're, you know, learning about the, the gender of their, their new baby. But to me, it's, it's more influenced by the fact that he is thinking about all of the stuff that he has to do and this moral quandary that he's, he finds himself in with what to do with crazy eight. Yeah. I, I also, I do wonder like what is going through his head 
about not revealing his cancer diagnosis. And I just have to think it's somehow linked to his pride as well, that the cancer to him is weakness, that he would reveal that he hasn't been able to provide for his family, that it looks too dire and he won't be able to leave them money. So it is it is interesting, but maybe an insight into the pride of Walt. And I think also an insight into how he feels about Skylar, because we'll learn later that you know, in a future episode, we'll learn more about her as a person and about how she is a problem solver. She wants to fix things. And I think that is something he wants to avoid in this case, because I think what he's thinking to himself is, I don't have time for her to try to solve this problem right now when I have this immense problem on my mind of there's a guy locked in a basement and I'm responsible for doing something with him. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, let's continue on here. We're heading into the climactic scene of the episode. So Jesse finally gathers up the courage to dispose of Emilio's body. So he drags the body out of the RV, and he happens to be doing this just as Skylar is walking up. Terrible timing. Jesse hides the body from her, tries to kind of stand in front of it, block her vision, have her turn around so she's she has her back to it. But she doesn't see it, fortunately for Jesse. Instead, she just lectures Jesse, tells him to stay away from her husband. She tells him... She knows everything, which scares Jesse until he realizes that when she says she knows everything, everything to her is that Jesse is Walt's pot dealer, which is you know not even remotely close to what's really going on here. So anyway, Skyler lectures him, finishes the lecture, walks away. Jesse drags Emilio's body upstairs and begins dissolving him in hydrofluoric acid in the bathtub. Not long after that, Walt returns to Jesse's house. The two are arguing. Uh, crazy, it is still alive. Jesse's not happy about that. Emilio's body is dissolving in the upstairs bathtub, and Jesse makes a revelation that, uh, let's just say, is very concerning to Walt. And here it is. Why dragging 200 pounds of stink up a flight of stairs? I barely got him in the bathtub. Bathtub? What? What do you mean, bathtub? You know, and that's another thing. Why you got me running around town trying to find some stupid piece of plastic when I have a perfectly good tub I can use? Hey! Hey! So Walt has walked into the hallway where he sees something dripping from the ceiling. It looks red, the color of blood, and it's falling onto the the floor below. And so that loud noise that you're hearing in the conclusion of the scene there is the bathtub caving in because it has completely collapsed and uh, lots of human remains and entrails falling suit behind it. So now the entire first floor hallway is covered in this. There is uh, a mixture of hydrofluoric acid and human remains everywhere. And Walt and Jesse are just looking at, at each other like, oh my goodness, did this actually just happen? And if you're wondering why that happened, you probably put two together, but here is Walt giving the lecture to Jesse, his former chemistry student, all about the chemistry behind this. I'm sorry, what were you asking me? Oh, yes. That stupid plastic container I asked you to buy. You see, hydrofluoric acid won't eat through plastic. It will, however, dissolve metal, rock, glass, ceramic, so there's that. So there's that, Josh. 
And that is the way the episode ends with the bathtub having collapsed and Walt, the consummate chemistry professor, always the teacher, giving Jesse a little chemistry lesson. What are your thoughts a, on what, what are your thoughts on this scene? Yeah, it's like a bit of a cliffhanger here. We uh, we need to immediately watch episode three to figure out what they're going to do with this situation. Exactly. So we have a lot of unresolved stuff happening at the end of this. We have the mess in the hallway. We still have Crazy Eight to deal with. Yeah, so my initial thought was, this is just, when I first watched the episode again, my initial thought was, this is just another example of the character dynamic between Walt and Jesse. Jesse doesn't listen, and there are major consequences that someone's going to have to clean up at some point. But then the more that I thought about it, I thought, maybe there's something to read into here. And Zach, you could tell me if I'm reading too much into this, but I was thinking that Jesse spends a lot of time going around town earlier in the episode trying to find the right container to put this hydrofluoric acid in and then decompose the body, but he he can't find it. Like, he can't find the right size. He can't find the right whatever. He can't find what he needs. Like, he just can't find the container. So I thought, is this representative of the characters we see in the show? And maybe specifically, is it representative of Jesse that his human self is just not the right container, not the right fit to handle the evilness that is going to come later in the series, that maybe the acid of Walt's influence will just continually eat through him until he's left with nothing. Am I reading too much into that? Is that too much of a stretch here? No, I don't think so. I hadn't thought about it before you brought it up, but I really like what you're getting at here. And I think it has to be about Jesse and not about Walt, because after all, it's it's Jesse who is the is the main character in this sequence, right? Who who makes the decision to use the bathtub instead of find the plastic tub. And I think it has to be about Jesse if it is about anybody at all. And I think you're you're onto something. This is you know, we, we talked about growth, decay, and transformation in Walt's chemistry class earlier. So we've had basically three chemistry lessons at this point now, right? We've had the growth, decay, transformation that you pointed out in the first episode. We've had the chirality discussion so far in this episode. And now we have Walt's lecture on what containers hydrofluoric acid does and does not eat through. And I think um, this is is just a continuation. I think basically every time there's there's a chemistry lecture <laughs> uh, that's being had, we have to read into this because that's that's part and parcel of what uh, Walt's character is. And I think the lecture here, the lesson for Jesse is that, yeah, if you're not the right, if you're not the right fit for this, um, or if you're not properly disposed to hold this, it's going to burn through you. It's going to corrode you. Um, right. It's going to, it's going to cause that decay. And eventually the transformation that we talked about in the first episode in the first lesson that Walt was giving his chemistry students. So I think you're absolutely right. I hadn't thought of this before, but I think this is indeed a lesson about or a, a, a sort of a foreshadowing for the Jesse character. And he maybe is, even more so that he thinks he's found something that works. Like he thinks the bathtub is going to work. Right. Just the way, same way he might think that he's properly disposed to continue on this path of drug making and drug dealing and whatever that entails. But ultimately, as we see with the bathtub and we will see whether or not this affects Jesse, like clearly the bathtub didn't work. So will Jesse be able to withstand the acid that is to come? Right. I think you're absolutely right. 
And I think we should wrap it up there, Josh, just for the sake of time. But the final question I have before we do is who do you think is the MVP of this episode? We're going to keep track every episode and throughout the show. We're going to keep track of who has garnered the most MVP points. Our, our MVP for the first episode was Brian Cranston as Walter White. Do you have a repeat here in the second episode or are you, are you going with a different candidate? I'm going with someone else this time. I'm going with Aaron Paul, who plays Jesse Pinkman. I think this is the first opportunity we get to see Jesse shining and we get his iconic voicemail. We get his sort of, you know, his nervousness and and his inability to to operate solo in any situation. I feel like we get real insight into the character of Jesse Pinkman. And I think Aaron Paul does a really good job in this episode. Who are you going with? Yeah, you stole it right from me. That's exactly what I was going to go with. And I think you know, we we sort of ended talking about him, so it seems like a pretty natural fit. But he really shines through this entire episode very strongly uh, from, you know, early scenes uh, with the RV to calling the White House, pretending to be an AT&T rep. You mentioned the voicemail already. Um, he is he's very prominently featured in this entire show, and we see more and more of his character develop. And Aaron Paul is the perfect casting choice for this. I can't even, can't even imagine what Jesse's character would have been if it wasn't Aaron Paul. Um, but I think it's really good. And it ends on this note. Again, you know, we, we've talked about the power differential between Walt and Jesse. And before we saw it as uh, Walt, the guy who was uh, basically extorting Jesse and threatening to turn him in unless he cooked. And now we see Walt, the chemistry teacher, giving Jesse one more chemistry lesson uh, as we close out the, the episode. So I'm also going to go with Aaron Paul. Our score then, we have Brian Cranston, one, and Aaron Paul, one. Anything else on episode two, Josh, before we wrap it up here? No, just a fun casting tidbit. Uh, the role of Jesse Pinkman was originally going to be played by Matthew Broderick. No, I'm just what? kidding. That, oh. that, would be so, <laughs> that would be so weird. What if Matthew Broderick was considered for every male role in the show? Uh, we considered Matthew, Matthew Broderick, Broderick for DEA Crazy agent. Eight, but uh, it, didn't, it didn't work out. Perfect. Um, I do wonder, maybe, uh, Josh, you're good at the casting research. Maybe we, maybe you can find out who was possibly looked at for the Aaron Paul role or the Jesse Pinkman role. Yeah, that, I will look that into would that. be interesting. Uh, he, I mean, I can't imagine him not being their first choice, but, uh, he was a pretty unknown quantity at this point in 2007. So it's possible that someone else was looked at for the role. So I'm curious. Yeah, we'll look I into do that. have a fun, uh, I do have a fun Jesse Pinkman related thing that we'll talk about towards the end of season one. But I, I, I will save it for a later okay. episode of the podcast. All right. Sounds good. Well, I'll look forward to that. Well, to our listeners, thank you so much for listening. Let us know what you liked, what you didn't like, what you'd like to hear more of or less of. We'd love to hear from you. BreakingPod at VernacularPodcast.com. You can also go to VernacularPodcast.com and check out all the other stuff we have going on there. We have several different podcasts on there, including one that I host with my wife called Vernacular and one that Josh hosts with his wife called The Popcast. You can find those wherever you get your podcasts. But like I said, let us know what you liked and didn't like about this one. We'd love to know if you think we missed something in episode two or episode one, if you're just going back and listening to it now. So once again, reach out to us, breakingpod at vernacularpodcast.com. All right, and I think that wraps it up. So we're looking forward to episode three next week. You can look forward to getting that wherever you get your podcasts. In the meantime, head to Apple Podcasts, drop us a review or a rating. We'd appreciate it. And tell all your friends and watch Breaking Bad. It's on Netflix. The greatest show ever made. I still stand by that claim. And I'm going to convince Josh by the time we finish talking about every single one of these episodes. All right. Well, that's it for Breaking Pod. I'm Zach. On the line with me is Josh Goldman. Have a great week. 
Representing the APQ. What up, biatch?